You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. I'm going to be flying to Atlanta tomorrow, and I'm grateful for this, this invention that we've uh, made called the airplane, uh, which allows us to travel a great distance and uh, to do so relatively safely, far safer than driving and walking probably. Um, but one of the things, like when you, you know, you've all flown, you, there's a, that person at the gate, right? Like, and they have to check to make sure that the right people are on the plane. And so there's this person that has the very difficult job of dealing with the people, right? Dealing with the people and checking boarding passes. Everybody has to have their name on the list, and then they have to have this piece of paper or this, this thing on their phone to scan, and that person at the front desk doesn't have any authorization to allow anyone on the plane that does not have a boarding pass. What's really helpful, though, is that they actually have the authority to print boarding passes. So there's really no excuse for someone that wants to be on the plane to be on the plane if they make it through the checks. And so that front gate person is really important, and I'm really grateful for them. I'm really grateful that there is a check to make sure that the the journey that we're making over this long, dangerous distance, that there is protections and there is checks to make sure that this long distance is protected. And I'm grateful for that attendant. And I know that they are just simply doing their job of checking to make sure that the people who belong on that airplane are actually on that airplane, that they have the appropriate authentication. And so as we talk about baptism this morning, baptism is like the boarding pass. People that belong on the airplane must have a boarding pass to get into the church membership of that particular local church. Baptism is a prerequisite. That is part of what the scriptures teach. And it is the church, and particularly its leaders, well, particularly the church, are to make sure that people have a boarding pass before they come into the membership of the church. Jesus has given his church in Matthew 16 that all who confess his name and are gathered into this church are given the keys of the kingdom, keys open doors and closed doors. And the church has the responsibility with baptism and the Lord's Supper to make sure that the right people are on the plane to make this long, dangerous distance and that they're kept safe. The ordinance are given by Jesus to protect and promote the gospel and make sure that we make the safe journey together. And so that's what baptism and Lord's Supper do, is that we are, in in some ways, to come onto the airplane. One must verify their identity and must be received by the members of that church into the fellowship and, uh, and then they're able to enjoy the delicious on-flight meal called the Lord's Supper, right? Which is about as nourishing as the on-flight meals. And so one of the ways that we check people's baptism, because you can be baptized in another church and then come into the membership of a different church, if you have your baptism credibly verified. You can come into this one if you were credibly baptized in another church, and the way that we credibly verify someone's baptism is this packet called our membership packet. Um, being brought into the local church is, in a sense, to transfer your membership. If it's a credible boarding pass, then we, the members, must receive that, approve that, and then you're cleared to enter into the local church. So the analogy breaks down at some point, but hopefully that gives you an understanding of Jesus gave us as people who receive the gospel to then protect and promote that gospel so that we can make this long journey on the airplane called the local church to our destination. So we want to talk about baptism Uh, today, and the title of our message is Baptized with Jesus. We could use other metaphors for baptism, like a driver's license, like a passport. It's the paperwork. It's the way that we can verify someone's identity and authorize them to do church things. And we are given the responsibility to do that as churches. The churches may think you are a believer, 
but they are only authorized to admit and, and to admit you into access and affirm you via baptism. That's the only tool Jesus gave us to affirm those who trust in him. But it's a beautiful tool and it protects us. Everyone must have a boarding pass, but the good thing is, is that we can print boarding passes. So if you're a believer and you long to come into the airplane, we would love to baptize you. We're authorized to do that. And so baptized with Jesus, the, the way that we understand baptism is to first go back into the Old Testament and look at how God has worked in these patterns dealing with water in the Old Testament. So the Bible is one unified book, and God has patterns and themes throughout the book that then pay off, particularly the one on baptism. So if we want to understand what it means to be baptized with Jesus, we need to first look at the water patterns in the Old Testament. I want to look at nine connecting images or stories that connect to baptism in the Old Testament. All right, There's more but this might give you a little bit of a feel of why God set it up, of this bringing through water into deliverance. We see in Genesis chapter 1 that the triune God brings creation through water, Genesis 1-2. We see that God brings Noah through the waters of judgment safely in an ark. That's how he saves from humanity in Genesis 6-8. through God provides Moses as a deliverer from his people by bringing him through the water into the palace. We see that God cleanses the priests of their sin and qualifies them for service by washing, Exodus 20 and 21. God delivers Egypt from Egyptian slavery through the waters of the Red Sea. So there's an atonement. There's the death of a lamb then being brought out of slavery through the Red Sea into a new world and a new relationship with God. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10 calls it a baptism. God baptized his people in the cloud and in the sea. So even the New Testament calls that event a baptism, an atonement, and then a bringing through water into a new relationship with God and a new covenant. God delivers Israel from Oh, I just said that. God brings his people through the Jordan into the promised land. He brings them out of the wilderness of the world into a new world by bringing them through the Jordan River, Joshua 3. God cleanses Naaman at the word of the prophet of his leprosy by dipping in the Jordan, 2 Kings 5. He has to dip in the water by faith in the word that the prophet preached to him. And it is by faith that he dips in the water, he comes back out of the Jordan, and he is cleansed. So this picture of God cleansing and saving through water. God plunges his disobedient prophet Jonah into the depths of a fish in the water and then brings him back out and sends him to bring a message of deliverance to his enemies. And we also have this non-water connection in the Old Testament to baptism, and that circumcision was the initiating sign of belonging to the covenant. And so also in the new people of God, it's no longer circumcision but baptism that visibly identifies you with God and his people. And we see that in Genesis chapter 17 and a whole bunch of Old, uh, Old Testament passages. So God has put these stories in there. He's not just making it up. He's not just like picking random things to do. He is showing us how that this through-the-water motif is going to have a payoff in the New Testament. Before we get to the payoff, let's see in five different texts what baptism is from five different texts in the New Testament. So we have water patterns in the Old Testament that we have to consider as we have this water ordinance, this water sacrament in the New Testament. And then what does baptism mean according to 
the New Testament. So a person believes in Jesus, is baptized, what have they done? What have they said? What does baptism do? What is it? First, baptism shows the spiritual union of that person with Christ's death and resurrection. So it demonstrates a present union with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Those two things go together. We were buried in our baptism with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So baptism demonstrates a present identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus and this new life. That's Romans 6. Interestingly, Paul had never been to Rome at this point, so he can write a letter to them and assume all the Christians have been baptized. Because that is part of Christianity. Paul has no category for someone who is a Christian and not yet baptized. Because he's writing to Rome, he's never been there, and he can say with legitimacy, all of us that have been baptized, and he can assume that they understand that that's necessary, that's part of Christianity. Secondly, baptism shows that a person has put on Christ. Genesis, Galatians chapter 3. Christ Jesus, uh, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Not through physical birth, but through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is neither Jew nor Greek. This is neither slave nor free. This is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Not by birth, like circumcision indicated, but by faith. When you demonstrate faith, then you receive the sign. You are Abraham's offspring according to promise. Third, baptism shows that a person is belonging to the church, is a member of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Another one, Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism. One God and Father who is of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. So there's one. There's one baptism that unites us together as one body. Fourth, baptism shows that the person's receiving the sign of burial and resurrection. I saw this in Romans 6, Colossians 2. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands. So it does say that baptism is tied to circumcision, but not in terms of being born physically, but being born spiritually. In him you also were circumcised, but I want to make sure, not the circumcision that you were thinking, made with hands, but putting off the body of the flesh of the circumcision of Christ. God promised that in the Old Testament, that there would be a new heart, that the heart would be reborn. And that's what the new sign is tied to, is the new heart. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith. Baptism is tied to faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Fifth passage. Baptism shows that the person's personal appeal for a new life. Baptism shows one's personal appeal to God for a new life. 
1 Peter 3, 21. Baptism corresponds to this. Now, now saves you not as the removal of dirt from the body. Baptism is not washing away sins. But as an appeal, a prayer, a request to God. Baptism is the person's request to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in, per, in baptism, the person who is being baptized is making a request for God. God, would you make me new? The person is making a request when they're consenting to be baptized. So, Old Testament, we have these pictures of water, right? That are not an accident. God means to pay them off. They're hints. They're, they're, they're threads that are going to be brought into this. In the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, we see that baptism communicates something, something very specific. These texts are not confusing. They're very straightforward. It's one's un- union with faith to Jesus and belonging to his body, the bride, the church. So how do these things come together? They come together in and with Jesus, and let me show you how. Matthew chapter 3, we see that Jesus and Matthew, it's interesting, at the beginning of Matthew, we have a baptism, and at the end of Matthew, as he's communicating this gospel, is a command to baptize. That's not an accident. Matthew wants to communicate how these water metaphors are going to pay off and how the new covenant will be made evident through the baptism of disciples. So Jesus' baptism fulfills all righteousness in Matthew chapter 3, and then Jesus commands baptism for all of those who enter into this righteousness by faith, for all of his followers in Matthew 28. There's a logic here. This is how the two intersect. The Old Testament picture, the New Testament reality comes together in Jesus. Baptism is about Jesus. Baptism is about Jesus. So Matthew 3, let's look at Matthew 3 at Jesus' baptism. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, his cousin John. John is known for baptizing. Call him John the Baptist, actually, because that was just so much the mark of what he did. He was baptizing people in repentance. People were turning from their sins and preparing. John was preparing the way for Jesus to come. And so here we have, and interesting, all four Gospels have the baptism of Jesus. So this is not just a throwaway. Jesus' baptism is necessary. You're going to see this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him. Jesus, this makes no sense. Baptism is for people who need repentance. You don't need repentance. I do. That's the logic here that John will talk about. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. And here, this is the most amazing thing Jesus says. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is filling for us to fulfill all righteousness. For us to fulfill all righteousness. So this is a big deal to Jesus. John, this is not optional. We have to do this if I'm going to be qualified to be the Savior. Then he consented. John's like, okay, you make a good case. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So you would put this on the short list of experiences in the Bible where the whole Trinity shows up. When the whole Trinity makes itself manifest, you should pay attention. This is not insignificant. This is not throwaway. This is not unnecessary. The baptism of Jesus is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. All four Gospels record this. And seem to be indicating that you don't actually have the gospel unless you have Jesus doing this. You do not, you need the baptism of Jesus. Jesus had to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He says that with his own words. 
And it looks like what's happening here is that this baptism is by immersion, by the two consenting parties. There's a baptizer and a baptizee. You can't baptize yourself. Jesus couldn't baptize himself. He had to be baptized by John. So there's two consenting parties that both have to agree on what's happening. Both parties have to agree for it to be a baptism. The Trinity makes its only appearance here at baptism. This is the first time in the Bible that the Trinity has made an appearance. Okay? So that's a big deal. This is a really important moment. And Jesus says, I, this has to happen. I can't accomplish my mission until I fulfill all righteousness. And so here's what happens. The Trinity all shows up. Jesus is obeying the command to fulfill all righteousness. The Father announces his pleasure at his Son, obeying his commands. This is my beloved Son. I am really pleased in him. And the Spirit lands upon him, commissioning him now for his work. He doesn't start his ministry until he has been baptized, received that commendation from his Father, and the Spirit is now... And so this is a public announcement. This is a public announcement that, that this now has begun. The new creation has begun. So what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness? I think this is a mystery, but let me take a stab at it. What does Jesus mean that his baptism fulfills all righteousness? Well, I think that what it's saying is that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of the Old Testament requirements for righteousness. And I think that we could connect this to what we just saw with the water pictures. We see that in Jesus, Jesus is now coming through the water and will bring a new creation. Just like the first creation, there will be a new creation that's going to be through Jesus. Jesus is the one that's going to bring new creation. Being in Jesus by faith, God will bring humanity through God's judgment. Jesus is a new and better Noah being brought through the waters. Jesus is now humanity's new and better Moses who has been drawn from the water to deliver his people. Jesus is now the truly clean priest who can offer right sacrifices for God, a one-for-all sacrifice. He's the true priest. The priests in Exodus need to be washed again and again. Jesus is washed now and is preparing to make the ultimate sacrifice for his people. Jesus is the new and better Moses leading to a new exodus whereby all of his people are baptized, brought through the water to a new life of covenant together. Like Moses brought the people through the water to a new covenant with God. Jesus is the better Joshua who leads his people triumphantly from the wilderness of the world into a new promised land, into the church. Jesus is the better Naaman who doesn't have his own disease but takes on the disease of sin of others. And through his obedience to God, is his baptism on the cross. That's what he calls it. He calls it a baptism on the cross. And through his obedience, those who are identified with him are made clean. Jesus is the better Jonah, who will go to the place of death and be brought back to offer salvation to his enemies. And Jesus offers a true and better circumcision, a circumcision not of the flesh, and not just for men, and not just for national Israelites, not to just those born in the right family, but to anyone who will put their trust in him. We'll have a circumcision of the heart. We'll have an authenticating sign of baptism that will be for, for any and all who demonstrate faith in him. It's a true and better circumcision that he offers. In John 3, he tells Nicodemus, you must be born of water and the Spirit. John Piper puts it this way. He said, entry into the old covenant people of God was by physical birth. Entry into the new covenant people of God is by spiritual birth. It would seem to follow then that the sign of the covenant would reflect this change and would be administered to those who give evidence of spiritual birth, checking the boarding pass, so to speak. 
The new thing since Jesus has come is that the covenant people of God are no longer a political ethnic nation, but a body of believers. The visible people of God are no longer formed through natural birth, but through new birth, and that expression through faith in Christ. Jesus' baptism fulfills the righteousness demanded in the Old Testament and pays off all the foreshadowings of the Old Testament related to water, judgment, salvation, and restoration. It's not an accident. He's brought it all together, and Jesus says to John, John's like, I don't really like how this is going. Jesus goes, this is not really up what to you. <laughs> this is me. And this is about me and what I must accomplish. I must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And the whole Trinity gives its endorsement at that moment. One theologian named Jonathan Pennington says, the church's ongoing practice of baptism, like the other practice of Lord's Supper, is simultaneously a repetition of and a post-Pentecost transformation of Jesus' own act. It's us taking the work of Christ and receiving it for ourselves in some sort of physical way that's helpful for us and the world to see that it's an actual taking of what Christ has done for us. Jesus was baptized as a sign of his dedication, his wholehearted obedience. And so too, we follow his example in wholehearted obedience. At the same time, his own baptism is transformed in our experience because he is more than just a model. We don't simply get baptized because he did. We're baptized into him. And he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. Though, like John the Baptist, we may be first be perplexed at why Jesus was baptized, we can see now that Jesus' baptism is a crucial part of his saving work in the world, always to be remembered. So that's what's happening in Matthew chapter 3. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28. So we see that that's necessary. The whole Trinity shows up, just, just so we wouldn't make light of it, right? This is a big deal, a fulfillment of all righteousness. So Jesus now lives his life, does his ministry, dies on the cross, for our sins, rises again, and as he's gathered with his people on the mountaintop, he's about to leave and he's going to give them final instructions on how they're to live out the Jesus life forever. It's called the Great Commission. Critically important. Jesus' final words, here is what you, Christians, churches, are to do. So Jesus commands baptism for all his followers. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So the resurrected Jesus, he's standing on the mountain. He's got his people with him. This is it. This is it. This is the last time that we see Jesus bodily until he returns. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain in which, God, in which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's so comforting. <laughs> it's possible to worship and doubt. In fact, Jesus doesn't even address their doubts. He just pushes right through it. I want you to obey me even if you're doubting, right? It's all right. I can deal with doubts. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Oh, that sounds like Genesis 1, where God made the heavens and the earth. Yeah, who's in charge of all that? I am, Jesus says. I am the authority. I have creator-level authority right now. So I'm going to give you a command in light of the fact that I am God. Okay, that's what he's saying. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, in light of my authority, make disciples of all nations. How? Baptize them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Him being with us to the end of the age is a form of accountability. I'm with you. And it's also a sort of comfort. I'm with you. I want you to obey this. This is what this does. So the final words of Jesus, he's laying down the gauntlet, but it's comfort. It's a command, but it's also a comfort. It's a wooing. It's the boss. It's the king giving an order. 
He says, go therefore and make disciples. Great. And how? Well, baptizing, teaching, and obeying. That's what's going to mark my people. Is when they become disciples, they will be baptized. They will begin to learn my teaching, and they will be marked by obeying my teaching. Who is baptized? Disciples. And notice who makes an appearance at baptism. The Trinity, right? Baptize them in what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, so like what happened at your baptism? Yeah. Because the approval of God rests on those who put their faith in Christ. The Father says at baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus identifies with people in baptism. I identify with repenting sinners by, in a sense, taking on the practice of a repenting sinner myself. I am joining sinners in the water. So that's what it talks about in Romans 6 and Colossians 2, that you are being united with Christ. Jesus is with you in the waters going, let's do this together. And the Spirit lands on a person. Not at their baptism, but it demonstrates the Spirit's approval and indwelling. It's a beautiful picture. It's an unbelievably beautiful picture of what is true about Jesus is now true of my disciples, that they belong to the triune God, and they have the triune God with them and are united to him. What if said of Jesus is now said of you through the voice of the church. Instead of hearing a voice from heaven, we hear the voice of the church speaking for God, like the keys of the kingdom, right? Speaking for God. This is our beloved brother and sister whom God has received by his son, and we now receive them into our fellowship as a brother and sister, and we are going to fly to the new heavens and the new earth together. Carefully guarded, carefully protected, carefully loved. The church on behalf of God says he or she is one of us, a child of God in whom God is pleased. Jesus himself is identifying them as they are baptized and the father explodes with joy in his declaration of his love for them. And the spirit now permanently rests upon this person and even inside of them, this person is now a member of this church set apart and commissioned for service in the saving mission of Jesus until he comes back. Baptism is doing all of that beautiful work. So, if you've been baptized, look back on your baptism. It shows that you're in spiritual union with Christ, Romans 3, Romans 6. If you've been baptized, then you have demonstrated that you have put on Christ, Galatians 3. Did you know that your baptism shows that you belong to the church? Not just the church generically, spiritually, but, the, but a particular church. 1 Corinthians 12. Ephesians 4. Did you know that your baptism shows that you are participating in the burial and resurrection of Jesus and that your baptism shows that you have asked God for a new life and a clean conscience and he is pleased to give it? That's what your baptism communicates if you've been baptized according to the scriptures. So I think we could say Jesus was not careless about baptism. He was willing to get in his arg- into an argument with his cousin over it. Jesus was not careless about baptism. He did not make it optional for himself. And we cannot be careless or optional when it comes to his command also for his disciples to be baptized. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. That's how we show we're disciples. David Mathis says this, in the ordinariness of the waters, we may come to overlook what baptism dramatizes, that God himself has rescued us from omnipotent wrath. And that he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. 
that he has plucked us from the course of this world and seated us by faith with his own son in the heavenly places. If we only had eyes to see, baptism broadcasts the most stunning mercies and graces to fallen creatures that they could ever receive and does so with a striking individual focus. While we partake together at the table as one, one baptizee stands alone with their baptizer in the water as God himself through his church communicates God's particular acceptance, love, and commitment to that one, to that one professing believer. All of his affection, all of his riches, all of his kindness for that person. It's all for them, and the church gets to be the communicators of that. It's a beautiful thing. So let me answer just a few questions. FAQs. I talk about baptism all the time, partially because I don't think it's insignificant here. But here's some questions that regularly come up. Does baptism save? No. I think we could look to the thief on the cross who was never baptized, yet Jesus gave his full approval. Yet, we cannot use that as an excuse to not follow Jesus if we're able to. Second, is baptism necessary? Yes. Does that contradict the first one? No. Does baptism save? No. Is it necessary? Yes. Because it's a command of Jesus, and you can't, you can't pit the grace of Jesus against the commands of Jesus. That's a confusion of the gospel. That's an illegitimate approach. You can't divorce Jesus as, as Savior and Jesus as Lord. You can't divorce those two. He is both, and you have to receive him as both. Both your Savior by faith, by grace through faith, his work. But he must also be your king or he's not your Savior. And he must be your Savior to be your king. We dare not, Christians, divorce the work of Christ from the commands of Christ. So yes, I think it is necessary because the king said it's necessary. What's the biblical pattern? I think just from the scriptures here, we didn't even get to the book of Acts. We might look at a couple passages here in a moment. But I think the biblical pattern, without exception, is a confessing, consenting believer. So you must freely choose this. can't be coerced. A confessing, someone who's confessing Christ as their Savior and consenting to being baptized. I think by immersion, because of that picture of death and resurrection, that's what Jesus did. Seems to be that's the best picture. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, by a gospel-preaching church into the membership of that local church, though that membership could be transferred, their boarding pass could be checked at the next gate if it's valid. And that's what we do in our membership class is simply check people's boarding passes before we grant them access to this airplane. So let me say that again. The biblical pattern is a confessing, consenting believer in Jesus who is baptized by immersion in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by a gospel-preaching church into the membership of that local church. Baptism is membership into that local church. Okay, that's the biblical pattern. How many times should a person be baptized? One time. There's one Lord, there's one baptism. There's only one kind of baptism, and one should only be baptized once truly. Is infant baptism baptism? The big question that you've all been waiting for. I've probably already hinted. And I would have to say, based on the biblical evidence, the answer is no. And it fails four tests, in my opinion. One, I think it fails the Old Testament picture text um, test. That those Old Testament um, pictures that we saw, I don't think that infant baptism does a good job of reflecting those Old Testament pictures. Of, that seems to be a present active salvation, not the hope of a salvation someday. 
That's probably the least persuasive one. We could get around that one. But I think it also fails the Jesus test in that Jesus says that this is how you make a disciple. This is, this is an ordinance for disciples. And I don't think that a baby is yet a disciple. I don't think they're yet a consenting, confessing believer, which is what I think we would define a disciple as being. So I think it fails the Jesus test. I also think it fails the example test. There's not one clear infant baptism in the Bible. Zero. Zero of them. Ah, That's problematic. That's really problematic if there's not one clear infant baptism in the Bible. And then fourthly, I think it fails the New Testament explanation text. You know all those texts I looked at, those five texts that explain what baptism is? I don't see in my mind how infant baptism shows evidence of one's right response to the gospel. I don't think that the baby is doing that. I don't think they know they're doing that. I don't think infant baptism is showing that this person now has the Holy Spirit in them, like Acts 10 talks about. I, think, I don't think infant baptism pictures well an active union with Christ or that this baby in some way has put on Christ. Romans 6 and Galatians 3. It doesn't seem to me that infant baptism really does bring someone into the active membership of the church. We're not then shoving Lord's Supper down their throats the next week, right? (laughs) If you're giving one ordinance, you have to give the other. They go together. So we should be, if we're going to baptize babies, also give them Lord's Supper, which that's problematic. Infant baptism does not picture one's putting off of the body of flesh and having been buried in death and resurrection with Jesus, Colossians 2. I don't think infant baptism is actually the baby's appeal to God for a good conscience, 1 Peter 3. Like, it just fails on every one of the texts that say what baptism is and does. And I wish, because my favorite people to read and study believe in baptizing babies, pedo-baptism. And I am trying as hard as I can to find a way to reconcile that, and I just cannot find a way to do that. Baptism is a load-bearing wall in the church. And if you're moving that, your church, is, your church will collapse. I can't think of a way to make this work. And I can't edit Jesus. I'm, I'm at the ticket table going, I wish I could take your Burger King receipt that you, wrote infant, that you wrote baptism on and let you in. But I'm not authorized to take Burger King receipts. It's not a baptism. It just it fails on every one of the tests. It doesn't even have one text that really connects it clearly. Circumcision was for babies. Therefore, baptism should be for babies just doesn't quite, doesn't quite persuade me, in my opinion, and part of me wishes it did. But one day I'm not going to stand in front and give an account to Tim Keller and R.C. Sproul and John Calvin. I'm going to give a testimony to the Lord. And I just don't like, what were you doing? Was I clear? Yeah. Why did you go against what I commanded? I was a little intimidated, and some people didn't like it. <laughs> That's not going to stand up very well. We're not the only airplane, though. And there are other airplanes that I think will safely get to heaven that are receiving these kinds of baptisms, and I'm happy to promote those churches. But I can't in good conscience be there here. What is required to be baptized? A clear explanation of the gospel. Can the person articulate the saving message of Jesus? Can the person, that's number one, is does the person being baptized clearly understand the gospel and be able to articulate it in some way? Secondly, 
Do they make a credible profession of having put their faith in that gospel? Are they genuinely united to Jesus? Third, does the person understand baptism and desire it rightly? If, hey, I want to be baptized just so I can take the Lord's Supper. Well, okay, wait, 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 wait a minute. That's not a bad desire in and of itself, but that's insufficient. Have you received Christ? Do you want Christ? It's about Christ. Baptism is about Christ. Um, and so someone has to desire it out of a desire for Christ, to be united to Christ, to be identified with Christ is a better way to say that. And then fourth, a covenant commitment to the church that someone knows that when they're being baptized, they're now accountable to a body. They're not a free agent. They've signed with a team. And they belong to that team. And they can transfer teams. And hopefully, hopefully every church is very careful to validate someone's baptism before they bring them into membership and bring them to the Lord's table. I think it's pastoral malpractice to not do that. So that's how we then transfer our baptism and join a different church. To have our baptism validated, our profession of faith vindicated. So a clear explanation of the gospel, credible profession of faith in that gospel, clear understanding and appropriate desire to be baptized and understanding that I'm now part of a people, like a real life people with names and faces and stories. And that's exactly what we try to do in this church. Be very careful about that. Another question, what about kids? What about kids? There's no kids that want to be baptized, kids that have grown up in the church. This is a tough one. I think this is one of the toughest pastoral things to try to figure out. Is kids that have grown up in the church, knowing all the right answers, how do you discern what's just sort of compliance and training and what genuinely is the Spirit's work in their life? I think that's very challenging. So there's no set age, I don't think. But by my own observation and experience, considering all that baptism is intending to communicate, and, and since we only are supposed to do it one time, I tend to cause younger kids to wait until it's really clear both in their mind what exactly all is going on and it's clear to the church because I don't baptize. The church baptizes. So that person being baptized needs to articulate enough of an understanding that the church itself could go, yep, that's one of ours. That's one of our brothers and sisters. So typically, at least around age 10 or so, in the last 10 years I've baptized maybe one person under the age of 10 and they were nine. I have no regrets about that at all. So we have this delicate balance of wanting to baptize someone as soon as possible, while at the same time realizing we need to preserve a certain understanding of baptism for our members in the church. And balancing those two is very difficult and requires a lot of patience and grace. So typically, if a kid is under 10, I generally encourage them to wait. But obviously, you're always coming at each one, and you're always encouraging every child's move towards Christ. Even if they have not, they're not yet at a point where you're like, oh, could, our con could our congregation confidently baptize this person with no reservations, knowing that we do this one time? If not, let's just wait, because it'll come back around. It's never no, it's always wait. Let's wait. And then when it's clear, let's get it done as soon as possible, because we want those brothers and sisters to be at the table as well. One more question. Can we just agree to disagree on baptism? be nice, but I think the answer is no, not according to the apostles, because we see in the book of Acts, actually, there's a couple different baptisms floating around, and it's really fascinating to see how they deal with differences of a couple different baptisms already popping up in the book of Acts. What we see is they're very quick and decisive to correct it and then to baptize appropriately. 
So Acts chapter 10, verses 47 and 48. I think this is on the screen there. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So if you receive the Holy Spirit, you have a right to be baptized. In fact, an obligation to be so. So you see that? See the logic in the apostles' minds? If they've received the, the Holy Spirit, then we are not authorized to tell them no, right? We cannot create any other standard for baptism other than the fact that they have made a credible profession of faith and they demonstrate the work of the Spirit in them. So that's what they're doing. This is the first time the gospel is now going to non-Jewish people in kind of a big way. And some of the Israelites are going, wait a minute, I thought this was us, just an us thing. So now the Spirit is being poured out on non-Jewish people, and it's like we cannot withhold baptism from them. We can't do it. If God has given His Spirit, we must baptize. But then look at what verse 48. Then He commanded them. That's the strongest word you could come up with right there. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit. So baptism was a right, but it was also a command. And then they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and asked him to remain for some days. So that's how the apostles saw this, as this thing is now really wild and weird and crazy, and they're trying to figure this out. The Holy Spirit leads them in this direction. Look at Acts chapter 18. Now a Jew named Apollos, I think this is on the screen there, hopefully you can read this, Acts 18, 24 through 26. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He was a great preacher, excellent preacher, Man, he is unpacking the scriptures like almost no one in the New Testament. This guy is an amazing preacher. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he was passionate. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But we have a problem. Though he knew only the baptism of John. Uh-oh. Now, we might be tempted to think, well, John was a big fan of Jesus. Like, his baptism should be fine, right? Like, that should count. That was by immersion, like that was, that was people consenting, that was people showing a belief in Jesus. And here's what happens, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila, just ordinary people, Apollos is a rock star, Priscilla and Aquila are just ordinary Christians. And they go, this is a problem. When they heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Ah, isn't that interesting? Apollos, you are rock solid on Jesus. You are rock solid on the Old Testament. You got this weird thing on baptism. We need to stop your preaching now. And we need to instruct you to preach an accurate baptism. Okay. Well, that's weird. Well, that's pretty intense. Let's go one more chapter. Acts chapter 19. In case you're not convinced. Acts chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard there's a Holy Spirit. We don't, we don't even know what you're talking about. No one's taught us about the Holy Spirit, so how do we even know that we've received him? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? So they immediately go, this, there's a baptism issue here. You, you didn't receive an actual baptism. Okay. We were baptized into John's baptism. Good enough, right? We were repenting. We were believing. We were immersed. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, uh, oh, there's Bible texts. Can we just agree to disagree? Uh, they didn't when it came to when they saw it. It felt like something they had to stop and correct. 
right away and get in line with the biblical pattern. So wrong understandings of baptism must be corrected immediately. False baptism cannot substitute for a true one. We're not authorized at the gate to accept different boarding passes, but we do have the authorization to print valid ones. So let me conclude with this. I'm grateful for the check-in counter at the airport. They care about me enough to make sure I have what I'm supposed to have. They care about my life and they care about the life of the passengers around. They care about the flight enough that they're willing to cause some offense. And I know it's not the ticket taker that made the rules. It's the owner of the plane that made the rules. He gave the instructions. That person's just doing their job. And I'm grateful that something as insignificant as an airplane flight, there's care and there's concern and there's a process and there's clear biblical texts and examples on how to do it well. How much more important is the care for souls and the journey to heaven and the gathering of God's people as they hold out the gospel to the world. My aim here is not to offend anyone. I simply want to be where the Bible stands. And I love that there are other churches and I love that there are other kinds of churches and I pray for their prosperity. I prepare, but I'm not accountable for those airplanes. I'm sitting in the cockpit of this one, right? I'm at the ticket desk of this one. And I think the owner of the plane has made it pretty clear. Likewise, I'm grateful for churches that check people's baptism before they enter the church. And I am grateful that churches are authorized to issue boarding passes. There's no reason why anyone can't become a member of any church if they'll put on Christ and get a boarding pass printed and come and enjoy the flight. I want to close with this picture here. This is from way back in 2004, the fall of 2004. So this is a picture of the day that I proposed to Bree. I set up a little tripod with a camera. Remember when you had to have cameras? This was back in the day when you had a camera, and I put a little timer on it. We'd been taking pictures in this park all day. And I had, uh, I had this ring in my pocket she didn't know about, and I was, I just, I was fiddling with it all day because I just was like, I don't want to lose this thing. This thing cost me a lot of money and is pretty significant, and I want to get this right. And I remember when I set it up and I set the timer, it's like a 10-second timer. I hesitated just a bit because I was nervous. I hesitated just a moment, and the timer went off. So there's actually a picture of Bree just sort of standing there. <laughs> so then I set it again, and then I did this. And I wanted us to have this moment. I wanted us to, to picture this moment where I was getting down on one knee and going, hey, I have purchased this for you. And in this moment, I didn't say all this, but this is what was being communicated, right? We understand this, a proposal. That I want to forsake all others and be identified with you for the rest of my life. At great expense to myself, I have bought this piece of metal and this rock that I hope is really a diamond. I want to give this to you as a token of I want to belong to you for the rest of my life. Would you be willing to give up all the other guys you could have, to come and join your life with me and wear this ring as a symbol that you belong to somebody, that someone has paid a sacrifice to get you, and now you receive it and you belong to them, and you take their name. Will you take my name? What an honor that a woman would take her husband's name. And you get this picture. Yes. She said, actually, I think what she said, she said, it would be my highest honor. That's what she said. She had practiced her response. And she kind of choked on it a little bit. She didn't execute perfectly either. But So the execution was, but the job got done, right? We had this beautiful picture. This beautiful picture. I totally ruined the moment. This beautiful picture 
of one person giving themselves to another, the other one consenting to receive that other person, and this token, this visible picture, right, of a ring. Putting on a ring doesn't make you married, but when you put it on, you're signaling something, right? Being baptized doesn't make you a believer, but it signals something, that you belong to someone. And what an honor to the person who gave you that ring. I belong to them. I have their name. I have their approval. I am united to them. They belong to me in all their fullness. I belong to them. Like the John Legend song, right? All of me for all of you. This beautiful picture. And that's what baptism is. Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, he's in the water. He said, I came and identified with you. And through my death and my resurrection, I am willing to be united with you forever. I am willing to be associated with you in all of your mess, in all of your debts, in all of your difficulties, in all of your sins, and all in your brokenness. I have come for you. I put on human flesh. I bore your sins. I will bear human flesh for the rest of my life. And I now have been baptized like a repenting sinner to identify with you. Will you join me in the water? Will you publicly, before people, will you marry me? Will you join me? Will you be identified with me? Will you wear the ring that I give you of baptism? And will you proudly identify yourself with me? In Jesus' baptizing, in Jesus' baptism, he is identifying with sinners for the rest of his life. And he extends on bended knee the ring of baptism, asking, commanding even, to come, be identified with me and only me for the rest of your life. Leave your home, leave your life, leave your name and take mine. Feel the Father's pleasure. Feel the Spirit's affirmation. I will be your husband. Will you be my bride? Will you join my bride, the church? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this super controversial topic of baptism and Lord's Supper the last couple weeks. Christians almost from the very outset have had disagreements about this, and that grieves me. But we thank you that your word is clear and sure. And God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful above all else. And God, I pray that each individual person here would, would see exactly what is going on in a baptism so that the next time they witness one, they can marvel at the work of God from Genesis to Revelation, from eternity past to eternity future, being focused in on this one moment and this one individual being brought into this massive story of redemption. And God, we pray that if there's anyone in here who goes, well, my baptism wasn't anything like that, God, we pray that you would work in their hearts. And God, ultimately, it's about receiving you. It's not about receiving a ring. It's not about doing a religious thing. It's about being identified with Jesus, feeling the pleasure of the Father, having the comfort of the Holy Spirit within us. So God, we pray that you would help us to see this rightly and to enjoy it for all that you intended it to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.